Hello, I'm Hardin Coleman, and you're listening to Caring, Character, and Community, the podcast of the Center for Character and Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. As Lindsay Barquet and I embark upon the second semester of this podcast, it is impossible not to have interpersonal violence, polarization, and the failure to negotiate peaceful resolution of conflict all at the front of our mind. From shootings in Buffalo, Ivaldi, and elsewhere, to failure to refine bipartisan solutions to economic and social challenges, to the war in the Ukraine, it is hard not to fear for all our children and the world they will inherit. At the same time, it is important to remind ourselves about those people and community efforts that are, are focused on hope. There are a great many people who are working hard to create caring communities in which all children have equal opportunities to flourish. Communities in which there's a focus on character development, not only in terms of what it means for each individual person, but also in terms of what it means to efforts to create environments that embrace and serve everyone well. In this semester, we want to share the story of individuals inside and outside of educational settings who are using their talents and passions to support positive youth development with a particular focus on equity. If you want to follow this podcast and get more information about the participants, you can do so online at ccsr.substack.com. We also want to hear your thoughts about what brings you hope. Please leave your comments online or email me at harden at bu.edu. Well, Chris, Chris, it's great to see you. So welcome. So I would really like it if you could introduce yourself to our community and explain a little bit about uh, where you're working now with core mission of, of uh, your program is. Hardin, great to see you again. It's been too long. Uh, I'm Chris Smith, Executive Director of Boston After School and Beyond. And we mobilize nearly 500 after school and summer programs who collectively serve over 25,000 kids in Boston. Uh, to provide high quality, enriching, engaging programs. And the basis for that is that uh, young people spend 80% of their waking hours outside of school. We don't often think about that, but the vast majority of a young person's time is spent outside of school. Yet so much of our focus in terms of public policy and consequently funding mm -hmm. is focused on school, which is only 20% of the time. So we were founded back in 2005 on the idea that if we could fill those hours after school and the months during the summer productively, that we could uh, really make a difference. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I, I think this field was founded mostly on the need for childcare, which certainly hasn't gone away. It's very practical. And then on safety to keep kids out of harm's way. And we've been proud to be part of the evolution to how uh, after school and summer programs not only provide uh, needed child care and safety, mm -hmm. but really help kids learn and develop. And I think we in our field have grown uh, coincident with some of the latest research on how development happens. And so it's been a, an incredibly fun journey working with really interesting, capable experts yeah. from so many different parts of the city to fill out this time outside of school. Yeah. So before I, I'd love to hear a little bit how, how, you know, what you see is uh, examples of how this works for people. But before we go there, I'd love to know how you, what drew you to this work? What brought you into this work? Yeah, I, I guess, um, 
your answer in hindsight is always different. It's most likely different than uh, what brought you into it in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, coming out of college, I went to Trinity College in Hartford. And, um, you know, I always noticed the it's evident the difference between the campus and the surrounding neighborhood. And I mm -hmm. think anyone who's been in a campus like that gets disparity. And, you know, I, I would say my youthful idealism brought me toward the sector in general. Mm -hmm. um, and I like the interdisciplinary nature of it. I was an American studies major. Yeah. And so I spent, in addition to explaining to my parents, um, you know, how sociology, political science, American literature fit together into a major, I thought, you know, this type of work might be a way to put that into action. Yeah. And to answer that question, what are you going to do with that degree? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I started just volunteering on a congressional campaign in my hometown of Worcester and um, getting exposed to some of the issues around then. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember reading uh, Jonathan Kozal's Savage Inequalities. Yep. And, yep. you know, it's, it's unsettling when you think of a, a young person who, or two young people from different places who, you know, you think should have the same chances at success, but as we well know now, it's just not the case. So uh, this field offered an opportunity to create uh, different kinds of opportunities. Mm -hmm. And um, I started at the U.S. Department of Education back in the uh, Secretary Riley's tenure. Yep. And there are a few people around there who were talking about learning outside of school. Mm -hmm. Very few, actually. Most of the focus was on teaching and learning in the classroom. Yep. But I was in a job where I got to work with different national nonprofits, uh, faith-based leaders, businesses to talk about how they could play a role in education. That brought me to Boston to the private industry council where I worked mm -hmm. for a decade. And then ultimately to Boston after school and beyond, which plays the same type of coordinating role, helping different players, in this case, mostly after school and summer programs, mm -hmm. play to their strengths, but in a coordinated way, yep. where we can measure our collective progress together. And in doing so really paint a picture of what learning could look like if it were holistic. So mm -hmm. I, you know, I think that was, um, that was what drew me to it. My dad was a public administrator. He was a, a postal worker for most of his career, ended up as a postmaster. So I think the, the public aspect was, was there. My mother volunteered through church a lot. Um, so I think those things probably subconsciously came together. Yeah. To kind of a value structure. The value structure. Yeah. And interest. And, um, but over time, I realized that it's, it could be professionalized in all the ways we think of professionalizing work. Yeah. And so I've enjoyed uh, bringing together what's disparate into coordinated yeah. approaches to developing measures to track our progress yeah. um, against our you, goals. You, you used the word twice, coordinated twice. And I'm really, I'm really drawn to that word. Um, and I'm going to, and you, you use it as a positive, this is part of bedrock to what you're saying. What are the kind of the challenges to bringing, as you say, disparate partners together and creating frameworks in which they, they can feel whether it's safe or encouraged or rewarded for collaboration and coordination? Yeah, yeah I, I think I'm guilty of this, but I think collaboration is among the most overused and ill-defined terms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, it likely shouldn't happen until it's necessary. I, th I think a lot of it tends to be window dressing. Uh, in our case, I think the programs we organize 
have an interest in collaborating with us and one another because uh, they're making themselves more visible in doing so. Mm -hmm. And as a result, are able to access the resources they need to operate. So there's real self-interest in collaboration. Yeah. They can learn from one another, pick up tips. Um, but it may not be for everyone. I mean, I, I think rationally, if you're if you're an organization that can get by on your own, you don't need this data platform that we've created. You don't need collaboration. You don't need to present a strong collaborative hand to big public agencies like the Boston Public mm -hmm. School. Then you might be able to do it on your own. Yeah. And so what we've realized that in having this network or a collaboration. Um, it gets stronger with each new member because you add mm -hmm. a new perspective, mm -hmm. your data mm -hmm. becomes stronger because you have more numbers mm -hmm. um, and you become stronger as a sector, you have more negotiating power. So the collaboration is really practical and helps all of us get better together. You, you sort of, sometimes those of us in the, in the, who think of themselves as engaged in the progressive uh, system change, um, Starting with the framework of self-interest, sometimes ego dystonic. You know, we, we, we want to believe we're doing it for others, but you're suggesting or intimating that part of building a community is accepting and addressing people's self-interest and, and why should they be engaged? Uh, what, what, how does it serve them even as we're thinking about serving kids? Is that, Bill, is that, is that, is that a fair yeah and, and and that's well said i think um in my own experience you know the first collaborative meeting always feels great look at all these people from different places mm -hmm. but turns out we care about the same things um yeah. we have the same hopes we have the same gripes it's mm -hmm. affirming yeah and i yeah. love that too but i'll never forget one of our program partners said and this is back when i started 2009 he said chris i love the company I love the coffee and muffins at these meetings, but we need to start making progress on tangible things like fundraising. And that yeah. always stuck with me. And so mm -hmm. I think actually our collaboration is more substantive now mm -hmm. that we have data before us collectively, ideas for policy change, common challenges, particularly the past two years during the pandemic. Yeah, um, It really put us to the test. What can we do together that mm -hmm. we can't do alone? And yeah. what can we do together now without waiting for permission from someone else? Yeah, yeah. So how do you how do you put together? So we talk a lot in this in this conversation. We talk a lot about caring, the ethic of caring. A lot of us come into the field because we we have this 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 belief that um, a nurturing, caring environment is is the type of environment in which children can thrive and adults can thrive and flourish. Um, how do you just suppose that theory of caring with a acceptance that self-interest needs to be part of that? That once, you know, I have arguments or deep conversations uh, with many people, and particularly one of, one of my sons who, who questions this theory of altruism um, to the point that uh, doubts people who don't own it first. So I'm wondering whether that's built in, that, that, that if we focus on caring, do we have to assume altruism as the driver versus, uh, you know, I have a self-interest in a positive community. So help me understand from your perspective, how do you work those that dynamic? Uh, that sounds like a great discussion for multiple <laughs> conversations, not, not just this one, but I, yeah. I guess I think about it for myself. Um, 
caring is necessary but not sufficient mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. a lot of people care yeah yeah what, what do you do about what you care about and mm -hmm. and you know it's it's um cliche because it's true actions speak louder than words yeah and yeah. so we're looking to work with people who are willing to step up and show what they care about by what they do mm -hmm. beyond their words and their expression that they care mm -hmm. but i i think it has to start there i mean that yeah. there are there are many ways to have a gratifying career you i i assume that everyone who's in this does care yeah. i actually assume that people who aren't in it also care but mm -hmm. maybe they express it in a different way yeah and I do think people care more about it when they have skin in the game. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. So in, in terms of maintaining collaborations over time, um, what role does your acquisition and use of data play in uh, facilitating the, you know, the sustainability of your organization? Yeah, we're, we're a small intermediary. So we're, Mm -hmm. Fewer than a dozen people. Um, we regrant two thirds of our funds, so mm -hmm. we're very much uh, light touch, and we mm -hmm. exist only to enable those we mobilize. Yeah. So you know, there's no earmark, there's no endowment. We could go away, and we're not necessary. Um, mm -hmm. I'll tell you why we. Started I, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure I accept that last line. You, well, you go away. You are necessary. But you're saying you don't have to have a significant investment in an infrastructure to be useful. Is that a, is that a fair correction? Yeah, I would love a. Don't get me wrong. I would love a significant investment <laughs> yeah. in our infrastructure. But uh, yeah, we've been we've been relevant and viable, and mm -hmm. therefore we exist. And uh, the way we started, though, it, it was interesting. In 2008, we we're deep in the high standards movement, and mm -hmm. uh, after school programs were saying look, we're getting held accountable for grades and test scores. Yeah, It's hard enough to hold teachers accountable for that. And, and we're being held accountable for that. And we all recognize that was unfair, unscientific. Mm -hmm. uh, but we quickly turned and said, well, what do you do? And what yeah. should you yeah. be held accountable for? And from that became really our reason for being. We came up with a set of skills that all these programs, despite their diversity, whether they're serving five-year-olds, or in-school, high-school dropouts, or anyone in between, mm -hmm. uh, whether they're big, small, do arts or sports, they're all focused on some combination of thinking critically and problem solving, teamwork and social awareness, mm -hmm. um, communication and perseverance. And they yeah. use their activity as a lens for learning. So once we understood that, we said, well, how many of you focus on these skills? Nine out of 10 focused on all of those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We asked, how many of you measure them? It was two or three out of 10. So we said, okay, maybe that's one way we can be useful is develop a set of durable, portable measures across this diverse yeah. array of programs. And what we discovered is that once you get a, a lot of programs on that same platform, you can see relative strengths and weaknesses. As soon yeah. as you see yeah. differences, yeah. you can learn. And that's what fueled the collaboration was learning from what we saw in the data. Mm -hmm. And now we're to the point where, as I mentioned, we're, you know, in a given year, 25,000 students, almost 500 programs, yeah. you, you can glean real insights from the data. Mm -hmm. um, and it's become more of a community. So we uh, first practically, you know, 
uh, necessity is the mother of all intervention. We went yeah. from hiring an evaluator to observe each site on a series of measures. And instead we trained staff from each of the programs to observe one mm -hmm. another. So every program benefits from a trained objective eye and they build the capacity and the expertise in the evaluation tools mm -hmm. so that I, don't know, I used to feel this way. I'd get a test back and say, oh, I wish I had known the teacher wanted me to know that. But yeah. we train them on what, what they should know up front so yep. that they can incorporate it in their own programs. So data is just language that um, mm -hmm. supports and facilitates a conversation, in this case, about great youth development and the practices. Can, can you give an example of, of, you know, of how you measure, uh, let's say, critical thinking or um, engagement across programs that's useful, what that looks like for those of us who are not in the measurement world. And that sounds like, a, you know, yeah. I know people, when you talk about getting data and measurement, some people say, you're trying to control me. You're not honoring. You're imposing an external framework on, on, on us. You're suggesting this is more um, uh, evolved from the work of the participants. So what does that look like? Yeah, these are, we use mostly tools from the State Department of Elementary and Secondary Education mm -hmm. that were developed by the National Institute on Out-of-School Time at Wellesley College. And I think the interesting thing to note is we complement an observer's perspective with that of students. So the mm -hmm. trained observer looks at the structure and organization of the program. Do things move fluently? Are there good transitions mm -hmm. in time? Is it well-organized? Do kids know what they're focused on when they come in? To staff and student relationships, are they yep. interacting in respectful ways? Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. stimulating the content is? Are they doing worksheets or are they progressing through a set of skills? Mm -hmm. Those scores are complemented by a youth survey about the program too. And therein often lies interesting differences. Yeah, yeah, you find, yeah. I found the data has shown that kids are sometimes less generous than the observer. And so it's good mm -hmm. to balance two perspectives. Yeah, we do yeah. the same thing on skills. So we'll have program staff and teachers, depending on the program, observe the frequency with which young people in the program demonstrate those skills. So on you know, critical thinking, it might be, do they they look for uh, credible sources of information. Yeah, yeah. They consider alternatives. Do they present clearly and persuasively in communication? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, perseverance, do they come back after a setback? So they're mm -hmm. all enumerated and scored. And again, um, you know, young people uh, are observed. And in many cases, they actually get the results so that they can have some feedback. By the way, it's all voluntary, so this isn't uh, forced yeah. on anyone. Mm -hmm. Programs mm -hmm. opt into it because otherwise they'd be left with very little to represent the great things they do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, in the few cases, and when we we you know we we compare programs to one another anonymously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And somebody's got to be below average, and sometimes yeah. that's a tough pill to swallow. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it, what you see from these tools is they're very practical. So, you know, I, I remember mm -hmm. one time a program took a hit on the structure and organization. And we said, well, you know, you're the person who's supposed to be greeting the kids had his back turned on his phone and he only greeted every fifth kid. Yeah. A better practice is to greet everyone by name. Yeah. And they said, oh, that's, that's fixable. So it yeah. gets to that yeah. level of granularity that you can actually do something about yeah. it. Yeah, no, yeah, you don't have to hide from it or wonder what contributed to it. Well, you just you just highlighted why I'm I'm a big fan of criterion reference uh, versus comparative data. You know, so 
possible for us all to be above average. It may not be possible for all of us to be the same. So if you identify what the criteria is, and I'm advocating this in around uh, academic proficiency and competency, we get away from the, the, the gap should be between kids who are proficient and not proficient, not whether they're you know super able and struggling. And so we're yeah. re reorganizing that and that will allow measurement to be useful because if I gap between what I need to succeed, is different than a gap between someone who has all the privileges and resources to do much better than I do. That's just a right. side note of one of my personal um, um, rants. Um, I agree with you. That's that's why we use a benchmark on them. You know, generally we're using four or five point scales. Yeah. So we'll have a threshold, a, a benchmark, and on most indicators, we're between eighty to eighty or more percent of the programs meet most of them. But right. there's always room for improvement, and yeah. you know it's these data turn quickly into very actionable words. So yeah. it's That's it's not cool. alienating and um, easy to act upon. One of the questions that we um, ponder a lot about is this another ambiguous word, character, character development. And, and, and it tends to take two different pieces. One, um, um, helping children develop their character but also what is a caregiver? What are the, ex as a caregiver, when you hire people, look at people or look at yourself, when you think of um, um, character traits or values that you think are useful and important in this work, what type of things come to your mind in terms of what, what, what good character looks like in your world? You know, I have three boys of my own, so we often have this discussion and, you know, what come, two things come to mind. I think just, uh, viscerally, I think of integrity and what you do mm -hmm. when people aren't looking. Yeah, yep. and that often is, you know, what do you grind away at to get better? In some cases, mm -hmm. you, you can think of hundreds of scenarios, but in terms of your skill development and and um, and what you bring to the table, whether you're in a program, on a team, mm -hmm. in a classroom, leading a classroom, you know, what are you doing to be a good participant in that? And most of that is underground. People don't see it. It's yep. when everything's off. So I think of that as, you know, character. Character gets used a lot in our work, though, in terms of skills. Yeah, there are a lot of the adjectives in front of skills. 21st century, soft, social, emotional, yeah. mm -hmm. character. So I guess um, in, in that sense, we think of skills as malleable. And I've stopped mm -hmm. using adjectives, but instead saying the skills, thinking yeah. critically, communicating clearly and persuasively, yeah. working well and contributing to teams and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. persevering. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, I think it's important for young people to know that um, you may have predispositions, you may yeah. have personality traits that you're born with, yeah. Yeah. Um, but with effort, you can change and adapt. And, yeah. and that's what our programs convey to kids that mm -hmm. you know, you're not set in where you are. That's you're right. okay where you are. And we're going to help you to get to where yeah. you want to go. Uh, but I, I do, I, I think viscerally, I think of character is, is what you do when nobody's looking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what do you bring in? What are the things that you, that you end up owning? You may have a whole set of skills that are successful, help you uh, be successful in the world. But then kind of, as you said earlier, with your parents having provided a value structure of service, a belief in the public good, a willingness to spend your time 
uh, driving improvement in communities, you know, then, then, then how do you bring your skills to apply those values in a particular manner? Yeah, and I, you know, it comes to staff, people will often ask during the interview, what are you looking for? And I, I always say that you know, your ability to um, anticipate what needs to be done, mm-hmm. initiate it, and most importantly, follow through. Yeah. yeah. And those sound really simple, but just doing that over and over again mm-hmm. makes you really productive. And, yeah. it, and it sounds very basic, but sometimes it's hard to follow through it, and it, you don't feel like it. And it requires a few extra calls and mm-hmm. persistence. And, and I do think, um, I think that's a sign of it's work ethic, but it's also character because especially in our world, you're not doing it for yourself or that's the right. organization. You're doing it on behalf of a, a larger effort. Mm-hmm. So if you were, if you were talking to that junior at Trinity who's in, has chosen the MCIV major, American studies major. Sorry, I gave my, my college, it was American <laughs> civil It's an American studies uh, major. And, and they were looking and come for that information interview. You know, what would you want them to know that you wish you had known when you started out? I think that, um, you know, knowing you wonder who am I, where am I going? How am I mm-hmm. going to succeed? And especially in your early 20s, how do I get from that entry level to the next step? Yeah. yeah. To know that um, experience is probably more valuable than anything else and a better teacher. So I'd want that person to be open to doing whatever is necessary Mm -hmm. uh, within the organization to get things done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if it even if there's not a direct payoff in responsibility, you have so many you accumulate reference points. So yeah. that when you experience something challenging later on, mm-hmm. you remember what it felt like, both your successes and failures. Yeah. Um, I remember them a lot. I mean, I, I draw on my own experiences from out-of-school programs and work. Yeah. And thing, when things went really poorly, yeah. <laughs> to, to know that, all right, I, I endured that. I'm still here. Mistakes are okay just get back on the horse and keep going. But I, I think the value of a diverse set of experiences, don't get locked into an expertise too quickly. Yeah, yeah. Now, other participants in the podcast have suggested that they wish they had been more comfortable with taking more risks when they were younger. They were so worried about not making a mistake. And now they found they learned so much from the mistakes they made that if they take a little more risk, a little more confidence to kind of try something they weren't sure about or stick by their perspective that may not be successful, that's where real learning and growth has come in their life. So it sounds similar to your suggesting, you know, engage, step out, take the risk, do something to learn from it, not just apply what you already know. Is it take that the risky, scary thing for many of us when we're in our late 20s? Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, when you're at that, at that moment before you take the risk, mm-hmm. you, you know, you're, you're likely weighing the, the outcome of it working out or not. But I agree, just if you go for it early, you're mm-hmm. also afforded more slack if you go for it early. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there, there's no doubt that that can pay off. And, and as you say, uh, failures are probably better teachers than successes because yeah. it, it uh, jolts you into thinking and reflecting about why didn't that work? What what could I have done differently? Yeah. And yeah, the other thing is you can't control the world around you. Um, 
you you may wish things were different, maybe even mm -hmm. that your employer is different. You can only control yourself in that context. So I would say, as you take risk, keep that in mind. Um, I think that self-reflection and ownership mm -hmm. from an early age, however it turns out, is it's really an important character trait as well. Yeah. yeah. And, and value to adhere to. I mean, I, I think those people are the most impressive when when you reflect on that, however it went, they said, here's what I did. Here's what I could do differently rather than projecting what, what else could have happened. Well, Chris, I really want to thank you for the time, but also more importantly, what, what you do for the kids of Boston, but even more so what I really admire about your work, what you do with such grace and kindness is uh, bringing adults together to be, to feel a sense of community and shared focus on our children. Very rare, increasingly rare in this world and takes a lot of um, uh, patience. Um, and I really want to say that uh, how much I admire the work you do and how important that it, building adult relationships and networks is for our children. And I want to thank you for that. But before I let you go, I want, I want, I want you to share three things. This is, this, I, I'm stealing this from Ezra Klein's podcast. So okay. he asked for three books. So I'm going to more open than that. You know, what are the three podcasts, books, articles, experiences that you would recommend people have, uh, recommend for people who are working in this world, creating communities in which kids can thrive? Yeah, thank you. And before I do, Harden, I want to thank you because you've been a part of driving that collaboration, you know, as a member of the Boston School Committee and a dean of education. Um, it was, you know, you were uniquely positioned in some ways to tout the benefits of learning outside of school. And you hosted two of our bigger events in back when we were in person, uh, which really helped facilitate and galvanize this this community. So um, I, I want you to know that too. Oh, thank um, you very much. Yeah, I think um, I think in terms of experiences or books, I mean, I I do think Savage Inequalities holds up because it, it gets mm -hmm. it what's structural about inequality in a very specific way. And uh, I think for anyone interested in education or anything related to education, uh, that's totally worthwhile. Um, I think doing something experientially, mm -hmm. uh, especially as you get older that you've never done yeah. can really shock you into the learning mode. Yeah. I, uh, sat in, I, I boxed in with the boxing program in our class, in our network last year. I'd never done that. I'd never put yeah. on gloves and it was just, it was eye opening to, uh, see the young person's perspective, yeah. get yeah. to know the teacher and to realize that that program is really nothing about boxing and everything to do with yeah. skill, persistence, practice. I, I would say I'm going to, I plan to build more of that mm -hmm. into my routine. Um, and I would say, um, you know, in terms of podcasts and media consumption, I've been uh, more deliberate about consuming uh, things, uh, uh, issues from the, the other perspective. So mm -hmm. I, I think for a while, I, I probably fed my own perspective and, you yep. know, it feels good to reaffirm things, but I've been trying to challenge myself and read more from both sides. And, um, yep. and, and I found them more interesting. I'm, I'm more, I'm more engaged and I think I'm more knowledgeable as a result. So I think those are the three things I'd advise. Can you give an example? Uh, why do you think about that? I'll give it 
I've been encouraged. I'm about to take a 14 hour drive by myself um, um, this Friday. So I have Thomas, I've downloaded Thomas Sowell's new book and, and explicitly recommend to me from a friend who says, you know, you know, you dismiss this guy a lot. I want you to sit and listen to him and then, and then figure out what's going on. So, so that, that's my example of trying to do that. So what would you recommend for those of us who we're, we all are deep in our feeds and we start listening to something um, and, and uh, do you have any suggestions for those of us who uh, may be overly invested in our own echo chamber? Well, I don't want to betray any of my own um, <laughs> alliance by my uh, predispositions, but I would just say that I've 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 grown tired of the cheap the cheap shots, especially in people I've believed in. So if I hear something where they're taking cheap shots, I feel like that's falling on one side of the divide in yes. a gratuitous way. Hey, sometimes that's fun, but I I would say. Uh, there are a lot of serious podcasts out there that would make you think. You know what I aspire to, though, in terms of perspective? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know, you know, the, the Economist, for, for those who can keep up with it, and I confess that I can't, you know, mm-hmm. they have, you know, it's an economically liberal and, and actually socially liberal perspective. And it tends, it has an economic point of view for sure. Yeah. But it's, I find its coverage tends to walk the line a bit um in a way that uh in a way that some other publications don't and so yeah. i i look for that level of apparent neutrality and what i'm listening yeah. to yeah um great example but i've i've gone back to music now harden as a perspective Ooh. and and trying to read more and you know like the, the the great i remember a, a teacher saying he said you know education becomes valuable when suddenly you realize that two two concepts you've studied independently come together yep. and that triggers it, that ignites a fire for learning and i said well we'll see when that happens but that's so true and the same when you read i mean especially something written a while ago and you yep. realize the same phenomenon exists now and you know that yep. author put into words what you could only think and feel and and she or he is articulated yep. and so that's such a great feeling so that I think music does the same thing. So, oh, so now, now you have to give us an example before I let you go. Got to give us a music example. The, this is like Ken, I don't know if you know Ken Elmore, the dean of uh, students here at BU. Now he's, he's taken over the presidency of a of Dean College. Um, his music was a great way that he talks about. Yeah, it's a good way to relate. I just brought my sixteen uh, year old son. We were we were going to a uh, lacrosse tournament and we stopped at NYU and we took turns playing songs the whole way down. So. Um, you know, I would say um, just fun and conscientious. Tribe Called Quest, we, and we we both like that. Okay. Um, I think Dylan has timeless lyrics. Yeah. And, um, and of course, uh, Bruce behind me, I think, is probably, <laughs> <laughs> he, he's up there for me. So I, I never get sick of them. Um, yeah. But, you know, through my son, I was learning about some new artists, too. And um you know, different way of expressing similar and different ideas. Yeah. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. And, and you know, it generates a lot of conversation that you wouldn't otherwise have. And I look back, you know, as an American studies major, those are some of my favorite courses. We did a lot on music, yeah. you know, uh, early protest music, music of Black American women. I mean, it was just, it's such a cool way to look at society, yeah. politics, culture, and yeah. change over time. 
Um, but you know, I, I, I'd love to incorporate more of that into our work. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. just a, a way to enhance it and make it even more fun. Well, Chris, once again, thank you so much for your time. And again, and for all that you do for, for children and, and such, a, such a great national model. Uh, we know that you, you help us create a world in which kids can, examples of how kids can flourish better. So thank you very much. Thanks, Arden. Great to see you. Thank you for listening to Caring, Character, and Community, the podcast of the Center for Character and Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. The development of this podcast has made possible the generous support from the BU's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development and a grant from the Kern Family Foundation. Thanks also to Lizzie Barquet for her editorial and production work on this podcast. The music you're hearing is Bluesy Vise by Doug Maxwell, produced by Media Right Productions. I'm Hardin Coleman, and thank you so much for listening.